Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be getting deep into the chapters we're discussing and those that came before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of A Game of Thrones, the TV show from a decade ago. Today, we're discussing Ned Six and Catelyn Four of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. Hey, Dan. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I, I'm looking forward to this. We have the most important moment to date in the podcast coming up in this episode. Does it have you... to do with sexual things with Littlefinger? No. Uh, I guess you did not pick up on it. I'll have to point it out to you when we get All there. Right. You can call it out. I'll be honest. I read these two chapters for today and uh, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I think uh, that's kind of you where got I'm some at more right clues now. maybe. Yeah, there's some stuff going on. I the I don't I you know, I know we were talking before the episode started and and the truth is is that like my my brain is reeling a little bit from both of these chapters and I have some strong things to to say and all this and I don't really know how I want to shape it yet. But I thought we'd start by just getting into let's get into right it. into the story. So, we start with a uh, Ned some number or other. 6. Ned, Ned 6. six. Our main character, he's he's lapping everybody. Yeah, yeah, he's been. Uh, we, we have we have just uh, been kind of surrounded by Ned for for a while now, and and Lord knows, and we talked about this, I think, even last time. Uh, he's kind of in a, a little bit of detective mode right now. He's really trying to dig into what happened with John Aaron, what's going on down here in King's Landing, while also carrying all the burdens of being the hand of the king, which apparently sucks. Yeah. Uh, so just as a, a quick reminder from last time we were with him, since both of these chapters are Stark family chapters, uh, Stark parent chapters, Ned, last time we saw go talk to Maester Pycelle about John Aaron's last mm -hmm. hours. He learned from him about a book, which will come back up. And then he had a conversation about Littlefinger, similarly, who pointed him to four members of John Aaron's household who are still in King's Landing. So both of those come up again. So I, I just wanted to reorient us there. Yeah, absolutely. And so we actually start this chapter where it's 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 with the king's council. And basically we're seeing the stress of the desires of the king uh yes. as it as it falls upon everybody to deal with this. This is the the tournament to celebrate Ned as the hand of the king, which Ned is quick to say it's not the hands tournament, it's the king's tournament that he's throwing. Uh but basically we have a conversation that starts right away. The commander of the city watch, With a new character, yeah, Janice yeah. Slint, and he commander of the city watch, and he's basically saying we don't have enough men. This tournament is bringing in tons and tons of people. We are stretched to the limit, and, and crime is way up. Yeah, this is a nightmare. Um, to which Ned, in his sort of uh, judicial kind of uh, kind of way, says, "Well, great, we're going to find the way to do this. We're going to scrounge up the money to hire more people, and I'm going to like actually contribute some of my own guard from my mm -hmm. personal house." Uh, but Ned is trying to like put put out fires, and he's still just struggling with the king's council. We have a little bit of back and forth between him and Pycelle again. Uh, yep. Pycelle saying, you know, hey, that brings in revenue to the city. And Ned basically says, screw you. Yeah, so so Pycelle first, uh, it's Pycelle and Littlefinger kind of chime in about why the tournament is a good thing. And Pycelle says more philosophically, which kind of fits who he is uh, gives the the greater chance for glory and the lowly a respite for, from their woes. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, this is just kind of such a pure bread and circus attitude. Let's 
let's not try and fix their woes or spend the obscene amounts of money on making life better for the poor people. Let's have a party. Uh, but Littlefinger is the one who chimes in about the money, not Pycelle here. And I think mm. that there's a, a great moment here. He mentions, you know, the inns are full to bursting and the whores uh, are walking down the street, jingling and jangling. But of course, we know he owns brothels. Right. So if the whores are getting rich, that means he's getting rich. And he is also the master of coin who is the one spending the money to put this event on, which seems like a really convenient little position to put himself in. And I get the sense too. I mean, and we kind of have have had this hinted at a little bit throughout Ned's arrival in King's Landing, but it seems that like while the king's away, everybody else will play. The king mm-hmm. is not paying that much attention to this. And in fact, Robert Baratheon, the king, has even said to Ned many times, I really don't want to have to deal with this. In fact, I'm, I want you as the hand to deal with this. Right. But Ned is not king. Ned is at the will of the king. And everybody kind of seems to be prospering for themselves a little bit. Uh, it's I know like we talked- that worst possible boss where they're huh. uh, they're telling you what you have to do and how you have to do it, but then want nothing to do with the actual implementation. Yeah. I know we even talked last time, too, that while we're watching all these other players in the King's Council and around the King really set up their own networks and setting up their own infrastructures, Ned's kind of the odd man out on that right now. He's not mm-hmm. playing that game, really. Um, we do have... During this conversation in the King's Council, as they're talking amongst themselves, we have a character that gets brought up, and I wanted to flag it here because it comes up again later in the chapter, but Stannis Baratheon gets brought up. Yeah, we get a a ton of info about him, really, for the first time. We had heard before that this is Robert's other brother. We have not met him. Uh, this is this is the middle child of the three Baratheon brothers, and he's yeah. actually a lot closer to Robert in age than Renly is, we learn. He's, they're a year apart, and then Renly's significantly younger. So I'm glad you mentioned that, because the note that I have here is, who is Stannis? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, like his name is mentioned, I realize he's a Baratheon, I understand that he's Robert's brother, but the fact is, is I didn't remember him very clearly from any other thing, and I'm glad to hear he hasn't been brought up too much. Yeah, so, so that's actually a perfect intro, because uh, we do get a lot of characterization of him here. Mm-hmm for Mm -hmm. the first time. Um, But just as a reminder, his name has come up a couple of times before. We heard about him for the first time, really, when Bran stumbled upon Cersei and Jaime uh, having sex in the Mm -hmm. tower. They're talking about their plotting and the various political issues. And uh, one of the two of them, I believe it's Cersei, brings up Robert's brothers as a risk. And we mm. we just get their names there, Renly and Stannis. We don't hear, you know, what the risk is or what the concern is, but that was really his introduction. And here, um, his name has been mentioned once or twice before. Uh, Ned thinks of him positively. We get a lot more of that here. The character introduction is Renly, in response to Littlefinger talking about how great the horse are doing, says Stannis tried to outlaw brothels a couple of years ago, which Robert shut him down on. He was really pissed about that. Right. Uh, and Renly describes him, you know, I don't even know how he has a kid. He goes to his marriage bed like a man marching to a battlefield with a grim look in his eyes and a determination to do his duty. Uh, we get a bunch of references to him being grim and not really... Uh, a fun person in the way that Robert and Renly both are. He's very proper and very dour. Uh, And then we also get a little bit of history here because during Robert's rebellion with him being close in age to Robert, he was effectively a general of Robert's. We hear Mm -hmm. that he held Storm's End, which is the Baratheon castle. So they were besieged by two lords, Lord Tyrell, who we know is the Lord Paramount of the Reach, and Lord Redwin, or Redwine, I believe this is the first time we've heard him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were down to, to 
eating rats and boot leather in that siege. So this is like a huge mark in Stannis's favor. And then the last thing we learn about him is that he was the one, and uh, this is another place we had heard his name before, but he was the one who took Dragonstone from the Targaryens. So Dragonstone right. is the house seat of the Targaryens away from the capital, kind of their Prince of Wales location where the heir mm -hmm. to the throne usually was. Uh, and we know Danny and Viserys were smuggled out of Dragonstone and across the sea by Sir Raymond Derry when Stannis showed up to take it. And then we now know Stannis is the Lord of Dragonstone, presumably because he is now the heir. So they kind of stole that tradition from the Targaryens. Right. And, and, and that's where he's been this whole time. Exactly. So that's a lot of background there. Yeah. And I just want to, to stress that as well is that, you know, during this conversation, as Stannis is brought up, they mentioned that he basically went to Dragonstone when Robert Baratheon went up to the north to go get Ned. Yeah. Uh, so he kind of dipped out then, and he's just been there since and just hasn't been present on the King's Council since then. Yeah, and Ned's concerned about it. And, you know, he mentions a few times he kind of wishes Stannis was here. He thinks of Stannis as a serious guy uh, and, and looking at the council around him. We know that he does not particularly like Varys or Littlefinger. He doesn't really know what to do with Redley. Uh, we don't really know his opinion on Pycelle, but Pycelle kind of seems out of it. And then we do know he likes Barristan Selmy. He's he's had that mm -hmm. conversation before. But so this could potentially have been another ally, ally for him, somebody he at least could have gotten along with and seen eye to eye with. So so it's it's concerning, Ned, that he's not around. But the conversation with the King's Council kind of comes to an end. It really was just about the stress on basically the kingdom and the king, like the the city guard and, and what they need. But Ned leaves and he reflects a little bit about how much he misses his wife, but it goes back to his chamber where he picks up the book that he had been speaking about with Pyrell in the last Pycelle. chapter of his Pycelle, in the last chapter of his that we saw. The book yes. is titled The Lineages and Histories of the Great Houses of the Seven Kingdoms with descriptions of many high lords and noble ladies and their children. Which so sounds like, like a real barn burner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Ned even says like, this is boring as all hell. And so, you know, I even made a note here. There's this is starting to creep up a lot in this chapter in particular for me. And I felt it a little bit in previous chapters, but mm -hmm. there seemed to be like, like my, my thinking around a lot of the story right now is, runs in two parallel thought processes. One is there's a lot of hints happening to guide me towards a revelation at some point. We will find mm -hmm. out why John Aaron was reading this book and what he was finding and all of these things. Well, it's not a mystery story unless uh, there's clues for you to figure it out along the way. Well, that's kind of the other question that I have here, though. I can't tell. Like here, I'll just ask it as the question, right? Should I already know why this book is important? Have, do, are there enough clues so far that I just haven't seen it yet? So that's, and, that's tough for me as somebody who's read these books a couple of times and listened to podcasts and read things. Mm. It's tough for me to answer. I'll tell you right now. I don't know if you should. But there is certainly enough that you could. Uh, if you if you think about it and put together the things you know, you have the pieces you need to come to the answer that you're being directed towards. Um, so we can try and try and focus in on this here. What were you going to ask? Well, I was going to even say like like. So I wrote a little like like prediction style note here, like my my guess. Oh, okay. In the moment here in this chapter, and I, I want to be really explicit about this too because this guess actually is is you know includes a little bit of like the next page that we haven't talked about just yet 
Okay. Uh, well, well and, put it in here. I mean, we can always go backwards, but give yeah. us all your evidence. And I'll say too that this guess happened before the more things were revealed later in this chapter, which we'll get okay. to in just a moment. But basically, we come to find out that John Aaron was looking up things about lineages. He then decided to send his son Robert to Dragonstone. And then after his murder, uh, Stannis then went to Dragonstone, which I can only imagine was there to kind of like protect this, you know, John Aaron's son, Robert. Well, so hang on. Sorry, I'm not trying to, to no, throw no, no, you no, off your groove here. And I want to hear where you're headed with this. But we do know John Aaron's son is with his mom back home in the Erie already. Wait, not that at Dragonstone? Come. No. So so we'll get to that in a moment. There were plans to foster him on Dragonstone is what okay. we get mentioned next page. But those plans were not consummated. So we've heard a bunch of times. Mm. Lysa, John Aaron's wife, okay. saw that he was killed, yep. sent the note to Catelyn, but she left. And so we had a conversation, again, going back to Jamie and Cersei's conversation. They mentioned, oh, she's... Uh, she took her accusations or whatever she may have known, and she fled with her kid to be safe. And then a couple chapters later, when Rob, Robert, uh, King Robert and Ned went riding together, Robert complains that mm. she didn't even ask for his leave, even though he had been the one to arrange the son going to be fostered at Casterly Rock with Tywin. Got it. Okay. But we've got some, we're going to have to backtrack a little bit, but we've got some competing narratives here. We've got Robert Aaron... Uh, potentially being fostered at Casterly Rock with Tywin Lannister. We've got him potentially being fostered at Dragonstone with Stannis. And now we have, in reality, he has gone back home with his mom. Okay, okay, I gotcha. Because but, part of me, while reading, to this point in the chapter, my feeling was John Aaron realized that maybe John Aaron's son should be heir to the throne, which makes no ooh, sense. Oh, okay. And then, like, like, ooh, like, like logically doesn't make sense to me. John Aaron sent his son to Dragonstone, who is now being pursued by Stannis. Uh, which, like, like sort of in that that way that we've seen, uh, like the like what we've learned about what a ward is, right? So maybe Stannis is there to keep young Robert Aaron as a ward or something like that. It well, you know what we work. also just learned. What's that? courtesy of Renly? Stannis has a daughter. Oh. I don't know. So, that makes no change in my thought. <laughs> well, well, let me throw something out here that you know, I'm 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 working with your theory here. Okay. Okay. Stannis has a daughter. John Aaron agreed to go foster his son at Dragonstone. Mm -hmm. We learn is the rumor going around. Stannis is the younger brother of Robert, mm -hmm. and the current Lord of Dragonstone. So if Robert and his children were to not be around then Stannis and his children would become the next step in line. De facto. Okay. So, and the idea being like, like a, 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 a consummation between... A marriage pact of some yeah, kind between yeah. Stannis's daughter and Robert Aaron. See, the thing that bugs me about all of this, though, is that, like, and I, we talked about this last episode, this is not a lineage issue for the Baratheons because Barat Robert Baratheon took over, usurped the last king. It's not that there's this huge chain of Baratheons that's come down here. Right. I think so. It's, it's, if, if and you'd even referred to this before, Jamie and Cersei, you know, referring to you know the 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 Baratheon brothers as a problem and things and conspiring. 
it's hard for me to understand why or to, or to think of a reason why the Lannisters would be concerned about their claim on the throne. Right. She's they're married the queen, to the king. The right. chi- she's got many children. You know, so so I wonder if there's a piece of this puzzle that's missing somewhere, some threat to the Lannisters, because this Lannisters feel like in a really solid position to me. The kingdom owes them a ton of money. They have the east side. They have the west side, like we've talked about. Mm-hmm. They have, they're, they're literally the queen. Like, so yeah. I'm trying to. I'm, and I'm all st- of the debt is there, too. Exactly. So I'll, I'll tell you now that scene between Jamie and Cersei. They were having a conversation about potential threats and risks. And one of the risks that Cersei was worried about was Robert putting her aside, getting bored of her effectively Mm -hmm. and and finding somebody young and somebody new to focus on. Uh, But they're also talking about, you know, what did Jon Arryn know and not know? And what does Lysa know because she's married to him? And what accusations might she be able to bring to Robert that, you know, he already doesn't like Cersei and says, screw it. I believe you. I hate my wife. Get rid of her. Right. So... You can just mull that over. I mean, there was a serious significant implications that they were talking about the murder of John Aaron and Lysa being suspicious about that. Of mm-hmm. course, we know she is suspicious uh, or potentially has evidence. I mean, we don't know what prompted her to send that letter. Um, but, you know, just just keep all of that in mind as we keep reading through these chapters here. I, I, I will. Although I will say with all of this said, the in the strangest and most interesting of ways, the Lannisters are coming off to me as the most like professional of everyone. They have politically taken a strong grasp of the things going on in this kingdom. They're super politically minded about things going on. And I look at them compared to like, say the Stark family, and I will allude and foreshadow to the (laughs) next chapter and things I had many problems with in that chapter. Okay. Uh, But I will say that it's it's interesting. I remember from the TV show, if only the tone towards the Lannisters, and we see it here too, right? I mean, they, they really thought of as being this kind of like greasy, you know, type of uh, uh, you know, kind of kind of subterfuge type characters. Well, I'll, I'll take issue with uh, subterfuge, certainly, but they're not greasy in the way that like Littlefinger and Varys feel greasy. They're very polished. They're certainly playing the same game as mm-hmm. Littlefinger and Varys, but. You know, you look at Cersei's interactions with Sansa. You look at Jamie's personality. He's got the arrogance, but it's it's an in-your-face arrogance, and it certainly fits in with this martial military class. Uh, so, like generally speaking, I can totally understand you getting a different feeling from them than like the general spies of the world. You know, it's funny you said it earlier, but I miss Jamie. I just like I feel like we haven't heard from Jamie in a long time. Like, yeah. where's Jamie? Absolutely. Anyway. That's so, yeah, my, so my sort of like mindset right now about what's going on. You know, Ned here is reading this book and is fed up with it and is interrupted by Jory Cassell coming to his door and they pick up the conversation yeah. that was left so off got, with Littlefinger. Yeah, I've got I've got two quick notes on the book before we move on from it. The first one, just because we haven't mentioned this and it's another piece of the puzzle that you're going to need to sort into things. The book is 100 years old. So nothing in it, the lineages, the descriptions, whatever else okay. is not there is nothing on people who are around right now. Uh, he says like very few, but it seems like nobody. Um, so from that perspective, he's not going to get anything about Robert or about Cersei or John Aaron or anything like that. They're not in it. The second thing is just a little bit of backstory that I think is fun. Uh, we hear about the history of House Lannister because that's the page that he flipped to to try and figure out what was going on. 
And we get this kind of mythical backstory to them, starting with this character, Lan the Clever, uh, hence the name Lan Lannister. and Bran, which I yeah. just think is dumb writing. <laughs> <laughs> but Lan the Clever was a trickster from the Age of Heroes, uh, as you just said, similar to Bran the Builder, kind of this mythical mm -hmm. patriarch of the house. Uh, and the stories about him are that he tricked the Casterlies out of Casterly Rock using nothing but his wits and stole gold from the sun to brighten his curly hair. A real Loki style character is kind of the takeaway yeah. that I got that sort of trickster. Exactly what you're saying. Mischievous. Definitely. So, yeah, you were saying so Jory shows up and they they pick up on the conversation from last Ned chapter about the, the people Littlefinger turned out. The four people that Littlefinger pointed at saying that, hey, these might be people that have some insights into John Aaron. And we kind of go through this list. And this this really does like, like was a big contributor into the things we were just talking about and my assumptions and thoughts and things that weren't logically working. But basically, it seems that. The majority of the, the most of these four people are kind of busts. Like it's uh -huh. just not kind of getting the information that we want. Yeah. Uh, so let's let's run through those. We kind of go in a weird order where it starts with one and then ends with the same one. But mm -hmm. the the ones in the middle, the little points. Uh, Sir Hugh was John Aaron's squire and got knighted after he died. Uh, he told Jory to fuck off. Uh, I'm not going to deal with some captain of the guard. Ned has to come himself. Right. Uh, the serving girl was nice, um, but didn't really know much. She said John has been reading too much, and he's troubled and melancholy over his young son's frailty. And Kurt with his wife. This is the same thing we heard from Pycelle that you know in mm -hmm. his in his last days, the weight of the world was really on him. Then there was a pot boy. Uh, who said, you know, I never spoke with John Aaron, which makes sense because he was a pot boy, but he did have some gossip about what John was up to. Right. And this really fed into what we were just talking about for me. Yeah. So, so, you know, he was fighting with Robert. He didn't really eat much. This is, I think, what you were referencing, uh, but was looking into the breeding of hunting hounds, uh, which is another piece of the lineages question. Uh, then we also have the same reference we were just talking about. He was sending Robert Aaron to be fostered on Dragonstone. And this is right. where we have, this is the second version of that story we've heard, like I mentioned. Uh, and he also says he, John Aaron went to go get new armor, super fancy, and brought Stannis with him. And that brings us to the fourth one. This is where Jory's coming from, the stable boy. And... Yeah, I think that the, basically just going off of that, the stable boy has said they went to go get that fancy armor and they would frequent a brothel. Yeah, and specifically, John Aaron and Stannis were going to a brothel. That's right. And we know Stannis is anti-brothels, although anti you know, certainly from the real world, we know that there is no impossibility in somebody trying to outlaw something while secretly partaking. Um, I don't know, man. Bros before brothels is what I always say. There you go. Uh, but, you know, it is at least worth noting that this does not line up with what we just heard about Stannis a few moments ago. Also, on the same note, Ned thinks the stable boy's references to who John Aaron was do not line up with who John Aaron was. Uh, John Aaron was not the type of guy to wear fancy armor, and he's not the type of guy to, you know, joke around with a stable boy and be best friends with him. This is not who who Ned knew this father figure to be. You know, it's funny because I actually wrote down a note here, it, really just at this point. It, it, there's so many of these, you know, these sort of noiry sort of feeling, detective feelings are starting to come up, right? You've got Ned Stark on the on the hunt trying to follow the, the, the clues that are in front of him. This doesn't quite fit. Maybe this is a clue. Like John Aaron never would do this. So him doing this. But the note that I made is, is, is I said it as a question for myself is like, is this a fantasy book or is this political intrigue with dragons? Uh, a little you bit know, of both. 
It is a little bit of both. I I miss the dragons, uh, but it's fun to watch. You know, Ned you haven't Gomez. met any dragons yet. Yeah, well, the cute dragon girls are fun. They count. Okay, there you go. I. Uh, but it's it's interesting to see, and so and this is really kind of like how the story. There a few things happen, but but Ned really takes this bit of information from from Jory and says, "Well, let's go check it out." Yeah. And so they decide to basically go through the city to 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 the armorer, if I'm not mistaken. Well, Ned sort of... Ned goes to the armorer. Jory right. gets to take some men and go check out brothels, which he is mm-hmm. pumped mm-hmm. about. Pumped. He's like, "Yeah, that's a great job." He even says, "I I'll take one of these guards." He's already gotten a head start. Uh, which I think is a nice little, nice little joke. And we follow Ned basically through the streets, which are brimming with people because of this tournament that's going on. We get introduced. I, I'm only going to make note of this because it it was mentioned, not because I took anything away from it. But we meet somebody uh, just in passing named Lord Berwick. Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, this, okay. this is the moment, Michael. This is the moment? This is tell the us, moment? Tell us about Lord Berwick. He's just a dork. He's just a guy who's coming to to win things. Yeah, he's pumped about the tourney. And his sigil, his banner, a night sky slashed with purple lightning. Do you know where you've seen that before, Michael? In a dream? No, Michael, it's our logo. Oh, it's our logo. logo. is a night sky slashed with purple lightning. We are Lord (laughs) Beric. We're Lord Beric? I thought we were I can't believe you missed this. It'll okay, I'm sorry later. that I didn't like understand the clip <laughs> art that you put together in MS Paint. I'm proud. I am proud of the logo that I put together in MS Paint. Well, I love it, but I just didn't realize it had anything to do with this book. <laughs> Most uh, important moment in the history of the podcast. How could well, you? Now that we hit it, like I guess we're done with the book. We don't even have to do anymore. Yeah, no, that's the end of the podcast. Thanks everybody for listening. We do have this quick moment with Lord Beric. <laughs> Uh, and basically, I mean, the moment is is a passable moment. I really wasn't even going to bring no, it. Up. It, was, it was nothing. <laughs> you, you have Ned who sees a knight basically arriving uh, with yeah. his party saying, we're ready to party. And then yeah. Ned says, Bluch, and then goes on and takes us to Tobo Mott. Tobo, Tobo Mott, the armorer. Yeah, and we get a quick introduction to him, uh, which, you know, scene setting really gives us everything we need. He is an armorer on the Street of Steel who lives at the top of the hill where the houses are really, really big. So this guy is rich. Yeah, and he's not terribly humble and knows it, too. He knows kind of the value of what he does and is proud of it. In fact, sees Ned, the hand of the king, and says, I'm ready to, you want to buy something? Because I'm ready to sell it, and you'll love it. Yeah, and he, yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to add that uh, one of the things that he says is you will not find craftsmanship equal to mind anywhere in the Seven Kingdoms, I promise you. And at that moment, I made a note that said, maybe he made the dagger that tried to murder Bran. And in oh, fact, a few lines later, he goes on to say that he learned he has learned to work with Valerian steel in the forges yeah. of Kohar as a boy. So I was thinking about, you know, I, I was wondering if there might be some and I want to give credit to George R.R. R. Martin with this as well. There's a lot of intrigue happening. There's a lot of weird things coming from behind, you know, the corners and the shadows. And now I'm getting paranoid. I love is, it. Is this character part of the, the problems that we've seen? Is he a contributor to the sort of subterfuge that's happening? I don't know. I, there, nothing about him makes me think of him as suspicious, except that he's saying things that could put him in the position. It's like a game of Clue at this point. Right. Was it? 
Tobo, you know, with the dagger in the sanitarium or whatever. Yeah. No, that's that's an interesting interesting. idea. Absolutely. And, you know, Stannis left around when the king went north, but he was also at this armorer. So maybe he played some role in connecting a Valyrian dagger with somebody in the party. Uh, He is mysteriously absent, for sure, as we hear throughout this chapter. Uh, Mott does mention just a couple of names that he's worked for before. uh, Lord Mm -hmm. Renly and the Knight of Flowers, both of whom, obviously, we know Lord Renly well. We've Mm -hmm. heard jokes before about how flamboyant he is uh, and, and how 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 he likes to dress fancily little fingers made fun of him for that before uh so we know that this is kind of lines up with that and the knight of flowers of course is loris tyrell just as a reminder he's the one that beat jamie in that last tournament right that's really where we've been hearing his name and so when ned shows up to 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 tobo mott uh tobo's quick to start talking and selling and ned's happy to let him talk but Ned quickly. I actually think that that's a really great moment because we talk a lot about Ned not being excellent at this uh, at this type of game, at this type of subterfuge. And he mm-hmm. just has a great moment where he thinks, you know, letting Tobomot speak, just sitting here silently, he's going to reveal what I want to hear. And that's such mm-hmm. a trope in the noir mystery world that I really like to see him work with. It is fun to see Ned kind of step into this role of kind of detective. And even though, as we talked about earlier in this episode and then in the last episode, he's not really setting up the infrastructure that he really should be. uh, It's cool to see him really step into this. And basically, he asks, you know, very quickly, I heard that the last hand kind of came to see you. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Tobo kind of ends up talking into answers, just like Ned was hoping. They asked to see the boy. And Ned says, I want to see the boy. And sure enough, we go and find a boy. Even though he has no idea who the boy is. No uh, idea. He's just going along with it. I love it. It's great. He's pulling at the thread. Uh, and so we meet the boy, Gendry. Gendry? Gendry. Gendry. I feel strongly about that one. Well, that's fine. Whatever. I don't care. I'm going to make it up. Genie. Um, <laughs> and and we have this, this really interesting... You know, we start to there's there's a conversation that happens basically right between Ned and this boy. And we find out that he's worked here for a while uh, and and that this was who John Aaron and Stannis had come to spend time to talk with. Yeah. Uh, and he's, uh, we, we just got a brief description of him. He's about Rob's age. He's big and strong. He has blue eyes and thick black hair. Yeah. Rob Stark. Um, yes. Sorry. Rob Stark. And Ned's thinking about his own kid. We find out, and this kind of brings us towards the end of the chapter, it becomes really apparent to Ned who this boy is. Mm-hmm. This is a bastard child of Robert Baratheon, the king. Yes. And now all of a sudden, this has reshaped what I was saying earlier, right? So the book of lineage and this and that, and all of a sudden, it seems like there is something that could be a threat to the Joffrey rulership, you know, lineage, if you will. If there's an older son somewhere who wants to claim right to the throne, this is my thinking. Uh-huh. You know, this makes sense. Uh, and and all of a sudden, now I'm starting to say, you know, I asked earlier, like, where's the threat to Lannisters? And now it's starting to say, well, maybe this is a threat to Lannisters. Okay. I mean, we do know, like, this is a bastard kid. We know from John in Westeros, that means they can't inherit. Mm-hmm. Uh, John ran into that problem. So, yeah, we know if Ned's judging it correctly, Gendry 
is older than Joffrey. Um, since he's about Rob's age, we know Rob is older than Joffrey, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily translate to anything. And, and we do learn that Gendry's mom was some tavern worker. She was this blonde lady who worked in a tavern, probably met Robert when he was out drinking some night, and then she died a long time ago. So she's nobody special. Uh, I mean, certainly it would be hard to believe they got married uh, like before Robert and Cersei well, did. I and guess so, this maybe- kid was legitimate. Part of me like wants there to be that threat to Lannisters, I guess. Not that I'm uh-huh. against Lannisters right now, as much as like something to justify their par- paranoia. I I don't understand what the big deal is. Like it's yeah. I feel like everybody knows that Robert Baratheon is sleeping around. Every like even his wife knows. Yeah, and Catelyn yeah. mentioned it way back when. You know, yeah. she said the king has tons of bastards running around. And Ned really has the same thought. He's, I, I don't know why John Aaron would come looking for this kid. I don't mm. get it. Yeah. And so that's kind of where the chapter ends. It, it, yeah. We, we and, do and, have one more mystery here briefly. Okay. Uh, we yeah. have a conversation between Ned and Tobo Mott. At the end, he says, who paid the apprentice fee? Mm-hmm. Mott tries to lie about it. And then once Ned presses him, says, uh, I don't know who he was. Guy stayed anonymous, but he paid twice the usual amount. Once for the boy to become an apprentice, apprentice wants to keep me quiet about it. And then we get a description of him. Stout, round of shoulder, not so tall as you. Brown beard, but there was a bit of red in it. Rich cloak, heavy purple velvet worked with silver threads, but he had his hood up. So I I just wanted to put it out there. I don't know if you have theories or not, but we don't have to linger on it. Uh, Tyrion. (laughs) Certainly Uh, not as tall as Probably not. Maybe Lord Beric, because purple was a color you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, Also probably not. (laughs) <laughs> seeing as Lord Beric just got here. Uh, okay. But regardless, uh, yeah, just worth being curious about. It seems that the track, the tracking of clues from Ned has led us to more mysteries. Uh, yeah. So be it, but I'd really like an answer. Uh, <laughs> and to be quite honest, I, I think that, like, like we talked about this earlier too, I really do think that I'm excited for when an answer comes to have a perspective on the clues that have been provided. And I'm excited for that potential aha moment where it's not here. It's finally laid out for me. And with that layout, it says, oh, wow, now these things really make sense the way that they had been brought together. Yeah, no, I will be able to do that when when the time comes, if the time ever comes. Uh, I'm just kidding there. You will get some sort of answers on this uh, and we'll be able to kind of point back and, and we'll come back to these things so that you can think it through again. Uh, but that brings us to, to Catelyn's chapter, Catelyn 4. Oh, Catelyn, you know, a while ago I said that Sansa sucks. And I've decided Sansa and her mother are the same. They both well, suck. Yeah, I mean, she's got the the Tully coloring, that's for sure. Uh, we're, we're bringing you around on Sansa over the course of the last couple of chapters. Mm, so hopefully slowly. we'll bring you around on Kat too. But this is such a, a badass chapter for Kat. She has her her big political moment. We've talked before about her being a, a political maneuverer uh, and kind of being the brains there that we saw in that conversation between her and Ned and putting the pieces together and we see it brought to action here kind of the the soft skills the the not martial skills being brought to bear in this chapter boo boo <laughs> strong disagree okay i i will say that this chapter seems to be i i want to touch on some of the things that happen and all of that but it really does seem to hinge on a very specific story point that happens at the end of the chapter yes uh, and so I do want to just kind of give us a little perspective here. Uh, Catelyn and uh, Sir Roderick are now like on the path away from King's Landing, going back yes. up north to Winterfell. 
Catelyn is kind of waxing poetic a little bit during their travels. She's enjoying, enjoying, I'm saying in strong quotes here, uh, in air quotes, but but is is enjoying the experience away from Winterfell for a second. She's thinking about her own father. Uh, and well, it, she's in her homeland. Right. This is, I think, uh, the biggest thing is is she's in the Riverlands, which is where she grew up. And we just get so much detail on this area that she had spent so much time in. We get mm-hmm. a mention early on specifically that Lord Hoster, her dad, spent a lot of time traveling around the Riverlands. She got to come on a lot of those trips. So this is just an area... This is her childhood and it's bringing yeah. her back to that. And she has some really lovely nostalgic sort of like thinking and, uh, you know, throughout this chapter as well as some really beautiful moments of her sort of sharing how much she misses this area. And, and it's sweet and it stands out. She does mention the desire to go visit her father and especially mm-hmm. coming off of conversations that she last had in her last chapter with Ned. You know, if war is coming, she wants her father to be aware <laughs> Like, yeah, like there, there are other players in life here, and there's no phones to pick up uh, and and have these conversations. It, it, so I know how much you love geography, but there is actually some important yeah, map okay. based considerations that we need to get out here. So she's coming up on a crossroads, an important crossroads, because this is where the King's Road, which connects Winterfell and beyond it, the Wall in the North to King's Landing, crosses a road going east west between the Erie to the east, which is, of course, where her sister is, and River Run to the west, where her Mm -hmm. dad rules. Uh, And, you know, this is way closer to King's Landing than Winterfell is. If Ned is giving instructions for the Northmen to get ready for war, even more so Hoster Tully needs to be warned about this because there's King's Landing to the south that is very close to River Run, but also that road going west crosses past River Run and goes straight into the Westerlands, which is where, of course, the Lannisters are. So he's going to be the first spot attacked if right. we pivot to war, and he's going to be caught between two enemy forces. Catelyn also brings up in her thinking, you know, I mean, she really is thinking as a political strategist and thinking about war coming. And she brings up this concern sort of like nagging at her in the back of her head. If it comes to war, there are sworn allegiances between people and families Mm -hmm. between families and her family and uh, like as Stark and families with her families, the Tullys and things, but should shit hit the fan, who would show up? And she talks about some people who, didn't show up as much as they were expected to during the last wars that happened and things like that. And I just, I just thought it was interesting that there's no such thing as black and white. It's not just like, oh yeah, here's, you know, butter side up team and here's butter side down team. Right. And they always are on those teams. There, there's a lot more sort of like, like nuance to these situations than, than that sort of simplicity. Yeah. This thought process also serves as some light foreshadowing for the end, the end of the, of the chapter. chapter exactly we get introduced to a lot of the riverlands houses here mm-hmm. uh, some of most almost all of them for the first time one of them for the second time uh, but just to run through them she thinks about the blackwoods and brackens who have a long-running feud there's lady went last of her line who lives in cavernous Hall. Irrashable Lord Frey, who's outlived seven wives and has tons of descendants living with him uh, and then when she thinks about the people who were not strictly loyal to her father the last time around Lord Frey gets brought up yet again. Uh, mm-hmm. He showed up to the battle at the Trident late. We know, of course, that's where Robert killed Rhaegar. Uh, and he got there late, and nobody can be totally sure who he was planning on supporting when he got there. Obviously, he claims, uh, of course, winner. To support the winner. <laughs> of course. Uh, 
And that's led to some friction. But we also hear of three houses, uh, the Darys, the Rigers, and the Mutons, who did, in fact, declare for the Targaryens during that war, despite the fact that they are Riverland houses who ostensibly were supposed to report to River Run. Uh, and the Darys are the one that we've heard about before. That is the castle where the incident with Joffrey and the Direwolves happened. Mm. Uh, and Ned was thinking in that chapter about the, the frictions that came from Robert's Rebellion 15 years ago. Right. And so we have Sir Roderick and Catelyn on this sort of muddy road in the rains traveling towards the north and it's getting late and they're thinking about a place to kind of camp and Catelyn kind of, you know, Sir Roderick says we really need to avoid people and Catelyn points out to him through a situation and she says, look, nobody's looking at us as the Starks of Winterfell here. Right. You know, we, we're blending in. Nobody's going to be concerned with this. Let's go to the inn that I know here that I'm familiar with. We'll have a warm place to sleep, a good food, a good meal. And yeah, if we keep our, our heads down, nobody will notice us. And exactly. that situation that you were referencing is the last River Lands house that we learn about. They get passed by Lord Jason Malister and his son Patrick of Seaguard, uh, who are another one of the River Lands houses. Cat has met Lord Jason many, many times, and he kind of tips his hat to her and keeps moving because she's just some random muddy lady on the side of the road. And so feeling comfortable and confident, they go into an inn that she's familiar with from when she was a child and decide to have some food, which is sort of in the main area, if you will, where everybody is, the dining area, the dining room. Uh, and they're there and they're having a lovely conversation with a wonderful musician, uh, a traveling a traveling bard, if you, you will. You cat, but like this douche, this guy's the worst. Marillion? This guy matters so little to me. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he does. They have a, a quick conversation with him before yeah. we get into the main center where, you know, he's talking about how great he is and how, you know, she should want to hear him. And has she heard of him before? Uh, he does mention how he's going to the tournament because last time there was a tournament, he made a ton of money on it, but bet it all on Jamie in the tournament uh, and lost. So, you know, yet another person betting on Jamie here. Mm -hmm. Uh and then he also has a reference, this kind of goes along with the Lord Aaron's people from his household lying about their relationship with him. He talks about how the young Lord at River Run loves him like a brother and he has a place there to stay. And right, Catelyn yeah. thinks how Edmure, her brother, hates all singers. So this guy's just <laughs> full of shit. But it's important that he shows up because after this conversation or during this conversation, even a more significant character shows up and it's. It's Tyrion. Oh, you, meant, you meant more significant than the singer. I thought you meant more significant than Cat. You were like, thank no. God, Tyrion's here. Yeah, I, right. The Catelyn <laughs> chapter, there better be a Lannister. No, uh, who should show up? It's Tyrion. And I, the sense that I got, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the sense that I got is this is the inn that Tyrion went to after Rob at Winterfell said, I don't oh, want no, you to stay no. here. This is no, later. We're way in the south. Yeah, okay, yeah. That's what south. I thought as you were talking about geography. And I was like, Okay, but regardless, this is Tyrion returning towards King's Landing on his way from the wall. Yes. Uh, yeah, so we and, know, you know, some time's passed and we didn't have a strict timeline lined up before. Uh, so who knows, you know, maybe he was at Winterfell when Kat was in King's Landing or even before she got to King's Landing or whatever it was. But they happened to run into each other here. Right. And, you know, sure enough, Catelyn understands that this will... This is literally the worst thing that could happen is she doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want anyone who knows her to know that she was in King's Landing, that right. it could lead to uh, investigations 
into what she was talking about with Ned and the letter that Lysa had sent and all of these things. I mean, and in particular, Tyrion is the worst person to learn yeah. about this because that's who she's trying to investigate. Right. And she tries to hold very still as if he's a dinosaur, right? Maybe he won't notice her <laughs> in the mess yeah. of people. And who should jump up but this obnoxious little singer that we were just talking about and say, oh, man, Tyrion, I'll play music for you. I'm the best. And Tyrion looks over and who should he see but Catelyn? Yeah. And he basically seems a little stunned and says, oh, good to see you. To yeah, which he's being totally polite. Yeah, sorry yeah. to miss you at Winterfell. Great mm-hmm. to see you. Surprised to see you here. And then Catelyn does what I think it could be the dumbest thing I've ever seen anyone do. Okay. The dumbest thing, Dan. Why? Well, just for those who are listening and not reading along, Catelyn looks around at the other people who are there and she recognizes them and says, calls them by their houses and says, you know, I know that you guys have have sworn or pledged oaths towards me and my side to things and fuck. Is this still true? And they're all saying, yeah, she's really getting them to get a little riled up in the best of ways on her side. At which point she says, now that she feels confident about this, she points at Tyrion and says, if you really are on my side, you need to arrest this man. And yeah, he's coming he with me. tried to kill my son. Tried to kill my son. And uh, and they do. They arrest him. And, and this is kind of where the chapter ends. Let me tell you why I think that's dumb. Okay. Isn't the whole point of her trip to King's Landing and to stay incognito on the way back up is to avoid causing a commotion which could potentially be the spark to lead to the war that she is so uh un like uncertain about the win winning that can come from it how is this not going to be the tipping point into a horrible war between we need to we need we need to get into exactly what the concerns were here in ned and cat and littlefinger's conversation the issue they were running into was Ned jumped straight to Cersei and the queen. And maybe the king is also involved. I'm worried about that, but I'm not sure how. But specifically Cersei, of course, that is who Lysa accused. He is the hand of the king. The only person that outranks him and has more authority than him is Robert, who trusts him like a brother, trusts him implicitly. Mm-hmm. Cersei is potentially above him. He needs evidence if he wants to go up against her. Tyrion is not one of those two people. Tyrion is separate from that. And so with Ned in a position of power, with the king's ear, with the ability to say, here's why we did this. Here's the evidence we had against him. Let's put him on trial. Let's figure this out. I'm trusting you as the king, as the authority and control of things to stand up and tell Tywin Lannister, you have to hold up. Let justice run its course. Let's have the trial. Let's get to the bottom of this. And if your son actually did try to kill my child, then that is reason to have him punished, to have him face the the sentence. All of that is a very fair way to think about the way that it would be, it would look on paper. But I think that we as the reader and the Stark family as a character who is experiencing this, what have we seen so far? We've seen that King Robert came to Ned to be the hand of the king, and it was pretty clear that he was not going to take no for an answer. 
We had the incident with Joffrey and the dire wolves, where all of a sudden there were some punishments that didn't really seem fair towards what, what Ned wanted for his family. And we saw some real deference from King Robert to what Cersei wanted. In addition to that, Ned comes down to King's Landing and finds out that the kingdom is in enormous debt, mostly to Lannisters at this point. And yeah. Lannisters are taking over the East and the West houses, whatever they were called in a sort of like almost flanking of the kingdom, like sort of like stronghold of this kingdom. We've also seen Ned's, uh, you know, Ned's intelligent desires to, let's say, not have the tournament uh, go falls on deaf ears to what is supposed to be his good friend. I think that there's, you know, what should be friend and friend in but, seats one and two of the throne okay. here. I don't think that's legitimate. I think that they're in a horrible, the Starks, I think Catelyn I, screwed I, the Starks. Okay, I, I get that. I don't think she has screwed them as badly as you're saying, though, because the whole criticism that we have had, that you in particular have had of Ned and the Starks in general, is this failure to use political power. Uh, and, and this is a situation of them actually exercising that power in a way that we have not seen them do before now. Catelyn saw a vulnerability. She had two options in front of her. One of them was Tyrion continues on to King's Landing and says, hey, I just ran into Catelyn Stark on the road. And everybody says, where was she coming from? What's the deal with that? Why did that happen? Ned, did you see her? What's going on? And everything gets blown up. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, she takes advantage of Tyrion being alone with like two Lannister guardsmen, otherwise Night's Watchmen, who probably aren't mm -hmm. going to give a shit, surrounded by people who report indirectly to her dad and Ned in the position to grab the ear of the king. What's, so, but what's her end game though? Like where her end game? She, she arrests him. Her end game is justice. Her end game is putting him on trial, whatever yeah, the, right. the Westerosi version of a trial is. And specifically with Ned able to have the ear of the king. Like we talked about that other side of things. The big flaw in what happened with the dire wolves is that Ned was not able to set the terms of that and instead failed to be reactive to the situation he was placed into. But imagine that type of context or this type of context in a similar thing where he's able to go have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Robert, which now he has access to. If he learns about this first, he goes and sits down with Robert and he says, hey, Here's what's happened. Here's what's been happening. We know Robert doesn't love the Lannisters. He doesn't care for Cersei. He He's pissed about this entire situation. There are ways to play this to their advantage. I think Catelyn reacted strongly to the situation that was in front of her decisively, and she did so in a way that... I don't know. Look, you're not wrong. There's a version of reality where it could play out the way you're talking about, but it's not necessary the way that you're describing it. I just think that Catelyn acted out of 100% from emotion. I think that there could have been plenty of excuses for her to put herself on that road that wouldn't have been incriminatory and, and wouldn't have put herself in a bad spot or her family. I think that what she's done is she's blown up Ned's investigation to, to, you know, she's put the spotlight on her and her family and the hand of the King, her husband. Mm -hmm. She's acted totally irrationally and out of turn here. And, and I get it. You know what? Every, all evidence points as she understands it points to Tyrion as the person who, who at least sent the, uh, the, the assassin to kill her son. Uh -huh. Well, and I, I want to, yeah, sorry, finish. Oh no, no. So I, I, I get I get what's happening. It just seems that th this seems to be an extension of a conversation we've had before, which is this sort of the 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 aggressive nobility and annoying nobility of the Starks. Oh, she is trusting in the system. Here. She's trusting a system that we 
I have yet as a reader in this book to see validity in, except for when Ned beheaded that that guy that abandoned the right. the, the okay. dude. That's reasonable. Uh, and, you know, she's being a, a stupid institutionalist in a, a kind of romantic way, like almost the way Sansa would think about it. The bad mm. man has to get arrested and be yeah, put on trial. That's a childish Sansa. Sansa, right. I just called it. They there both suck. Um, well, I am rejecting that, but we'll, we'll have some time <laughs> to work on it. I did want to bring something up because you said once again, you've said this many times before, we have enough to really pretty conclusively in your view connect Tyrion to the dagger and i've been fighting you on this the whole way and i wanted to mention something that happens in this scene here hatlin mm-hmm. gets up and she starts going around the room to the went soldier and the bracken soldier and the fray soldiers and all of this and says you know hey you know what the deal is and we get this moment where sir roderick loosens his sword and his scabbard he knows exactly what she's doing from when she starts doing it and he knows that because he's been involved in the investigation up to this point. He knows what she thinks of Tyrion, what she thinks happened. And so he sees Tyrion walk in. He knows that this is blowing up their spot, but he also knows that she believes Tyrion committed attempted murder against her son. Mm -hmm. Tyrion though, we know he's a smart guy. I mean, this is his central character trait that we've gotten from him this whole time is completely lost through this entire situation. Absolutely. So wouldn't he, if he knew he was guilty, as the guilty person does, and sees her going around the room calling on these men's oaths and sees Sir Roderick loosening his sword and his scabbard, there's nothing in his mind that says, maybe she figured something out. Maybe she got the dagger. He knows Bran's alive. He knows the the attack didn't work. And he knows that Rob greeted him very hostily. And he's still not putting the pieces together here. Well, I, I'll I'll push back just for a second. I don't think that, and if when I said that that you know all all clues point to Tyrion as the as the culprit, there's nothing about him that necessarily feels like he's that culprit, even into the chapters leading up to this. As much as the evidence seems to be pointing in that direction, and I can understand why Catelyn would feel that way and all this, but I'll also add to what you had just said before too: is that Tyrion is a smart guy, and here he is as a dwarf uh, or whatever he is midget or grotesque tiny guy um but uh <laughs> but but here he is with like you said right just two guards surrounded by all these people what could he do you know guilty not guilty like what, what is he gonna do he's gonna talk his way out of the no the no fomentation I'm not that... to do something different it's just mm. that that moment of confusion sticks out to me in the same way that his reaction to hearing Bran was going to live stuck out to me that this is a couple of instances where either he is doing a very good job acting in Mm -hmm. front of it. We're not in his head for any of these moments. So it's based on what other people are seeing, but either he's doing a very good job acting in an instant reaction to news that he does not necessarily know is coming, or he's genuinely surprised and expressing these emotions in response to things, in which case he's not the one who did it. That's fine, but I don't think that it matters. Like, and and I'll say this this way, right? Like, devil's advocate, just first and foremost, he was surprised to see Catelyn there. I mean, this is a man who's constantly thinking about, you know, situations. It wouldn't surprise me if all of this happened way faster than he was able to sort of register what the heck was going on. What a random person to run into, especially in this place, in this moment, who really wasn't supposed to be there at all. The second thing, though, that I'll add is that, you know, the the... 
I like he's guilty. He's not guilty. I don't think that changes how dumb this action is from Cat. No, no, no. This is a separate topic. Yeah. I, I so I, I see. I see where you're coming from. But but I like. Yeah. So to your point, I'm just from the chapters that we've had between the John chapters and the Tyrion chapters. Tyrion's striking me as a pretty legitimately authentic guy. Like, okay. like, like I'm enjoying his character. It's I'm I'm getting further and further away from the idea that he really sent an assassin. And if he did, I see it as a very political play and not an emotional one in any means. And and that he would find a way to argue not that, that would save him with the mom. But obviously, <laughs> but uh, but I do think that that that's just getting pushed away. I I am. I, I can't, you know, it's been a while since we've said it, but this feels like it could be a real inciting incident for, you know, <laughs> the next need to. the next thing that's about to happen. I just, I, I just, it's hard for me to see how this situation turns into anything besides the king, friend or not, by virtue of his connection and dependence on the Lannisters, rallies an army and butchers the North. Okay, uh, so, so yeah, so let's get some predictions down here. That's the first one. You think this is leading to war? I think. Well, that's... and then uh, it's a two-part question, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you think this is leading to leading to war, and if it does, what are the battle lines effectively? Yeah. So let me let me even rephrase. I think that uh, this has the potential to lead to war, which is what makes it such a stupid action. Mm-hmm. In terms of the book, I don't think this will actually lead to war i think it'll lead to Tyrion getting even more of a strategic stronghold on whatever situation he's trying to control okay i think that he will quickly find his way out of the clutches of catelyn and winterfell and this and that or god knows what about what's about to happen okay Uh, and and i don't mean by sneaking away i mean by like like playing off the like political savvy that he is that he is known to do Okay. Uh, and kind of go away, but we'll put him in an even stronger position. We'll put the Starks in an even worse position, and we'll continue to tear away at the uh, stability that the Starks think that they have underneath their feet. Got it. And uh, and from that same perspective, whether or not Tyrion manages to play his way out of the situation, where where is Cat going? Where is she taking him? She's taking him back to Winterfell. I have no idea. I, I okay. have. I assume so, but but again, when I was reading it, I thought they were closer to Winterfell than they they clearly are. Yeah, you know, no, so that, Winterfell is the furthest of the four options she has ahead uh, in front of her. So you know, we're at the four way crossroads. Right. We've got Winterfell, which is where she was planning on heading, but is the furthest. We have River Run, where her dad is. Mm-hmm. We have the Eyrie, where Lysa is, and we have back to King's Landing, where Ned is and the King. Well, I can't imagine she's about to go to King's Landing. I assume that she's going to try to go to her father's, although she said okay. he was sick. But yeah, I, I don't know. Again, like I said, this just seemed like a horrible move. Okay. No thought. I mean, maybe about she it, doesn't so. know either. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. All right. Well, uh, I think that covers it for me. Did you have any last thoughts? Yeah, Catelyn sucks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You need you need Danny back in your life. Yeah, That's I need some need. Danny. I need some I need some Targaryen, some Targaryen vigor. Okay. Well, all right. Next time we're gonna do three episodes. We've got Sansa two, Ned seven, and we're gonna no. do three chapters, I think. That's what I said. No, you said episodes. Three chapters, yes. Keep Wait. it together. Hang on. I do not know what number Tyrion this is. That could be important information. It's like six at this point. Tyrion 4. Okay, yeah, three chapters. Sansa 2, Ned 7, and Tyrion 4. I'll talk to you then. Awesome. Looking forward to it.
That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing three chapters, A Game of Thrones, Sans 2, Ned 7, and Tyrion 4. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast, following us on Twitter at Bros with Banners. Feel free to reach out if you have any thoughts or feedback uh, in response to the chapter. And thanks, as always, for listening.